Welcome to the Prime Talk with your hosts, Dan and James. All right, we are we are here in our self-imposed exile. Obviously, we could do whatever we want. We are the uh, Grog Emperors, but we have decided to follow the world so we can plot their overthrow. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, all those on the internet. Welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. And where are we from today, Dan? We are from the second layer of the abyss. We're, yes. we're still in the abyss. Things have not, they're getting worse. That's right. We're, we're going down. <laughs> Uh, you know, they say to go down in a dungeon, and so we've been heading down in the abyss. It seems they would apply here, too. And so we are in the Forest of Temptation. We are in the Forest of Temptation. Only 664 layers to go, so... <laughs> well, well, we can survive this, can't we? Yeah. What are, yeah. The, what are the odds we, we won't survive through all of that? Yeah, I'm sure we'll be fine, just like on the hex crawl, which we're doing at 9 o'clock again. Our friend Carlos Lysing is coming out, which is super cool. Um... And then we are very fortunate uh, and, I, and to have Jim Ward coming on at uh, 10 o'clock. So I have to call him at 9.50 uh, to get, and then Skype him. So that there may be a little transition as we get all that going. So super excited today. Uh, let's see. Let's talk about, you know, hopefully GrogCon was going to happen October 9th through 11th. Again, this may work out perfectly. It will be the last, the last con standing. Or it's going to be when the, this pandemic comes around again, and it'll be a fall surprise, which will, is just as exciting. So I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff one way or the other. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right. So Grognod's Guild Online, a lot of people, I, th I think some people saw, I put out a video about how to stream your game online. Um, a lot of people have had interest in how to play online because obviously you can't get together with folks. So we have our Grognards Guild online. You can do that at Meetup. DM Brian and DM Josh now are running uh, games. So oh, looking for players. So if you're interested in that, go to the Meetup. Uh, also, our dear friend who is online, the uh, Chamberlain Brandywine, uh, Rob, is out there. He's starting his campaign on Zoom, so he may be taking some new folks as well. I'm not sure. Uh, but, but send them a note at Meetup, and I'll put that on the link. Uh, patrons, again, thank you to all our patrons. We know times are tough for us, some of us or a lot of us. So if you're still supporting us, thank you very much. Um, and uh, we, we want to, we have a special heraldry section today, Dan. So I'm going to sh show you that uh, right now. Uh, so let me see if I can get that going. Uh, now, if I play that, are you going to hear it in the background? Because I was hearing us twice. Oh, you were hearing us twice? Well, so you know, I don't want to. I don't want to have sound going over it. You know. Okay. Well, then. You know what I mean? There's uh, a there's a delay. Yeah, I got you. Well, uh, yeah, I would probably mute it. Uh, I'll I'll just show I'll show it to you later. Okay. All right. Let's see. Let's see if this works. Good evening, everyone. We're coming live to you from our lair in the North Woods, where the scourge of the North, Victor Dorso, and myself, the Empress Strangler Grand. Druid of the Northwoods, Genie, have taken it upon ourselves to roll up titles for Dan and James, the Grognards who bring you Grog Talk. So these are the titles we came up with. James is the general, his eminent, 
honor Sir Terrible Sword of Longwood. And Dan is the governor, his brilliant omnipotence king, stupendous slaughterer of Winter Park. So you're going to have big puffy heads after hearing that. So have a great evening. (laughs) We love you. Good night. All right. So there we go. We've been given titles. What do you think about that? You, you, you there, Dan? I am. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. That's awesome. Right. So we have two titles. I'll have to put them up on the uh, on our heraldry page. So thanks to um, the Emperor Strangler and the Scourge of the North for giving us that. We are, we, is that the Slaughtered Winter Park? Yeah. I'm, I, slaughterer. Slaughterer. The, I'm the brilliant slaughterer. That's right. That's right, too. Just call me Mr. Brilliant. <laughs> Mr. Brilliant. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the, di- the dice don't lie. We've said it time and right. time again. That's exactly. And because, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that. We'll be posting that up on there. So again, thanks to the S- Strangler and Scourge uh, for the Emperor Strangler and the Scourge of the North for that. Okay. So, uh, yes, and, and, you know, it's, it's good, well, you know, because I do live in Longwood that, uh, you know, it sounds very appropriate for fantasy role-playing, you know, so I do like my title as well. Excellent. Um, uh, so, Dan, why don't you introduce our guest who really doesn't need much introduction, but introduce him regardless. You got it. So it is our absolute pleasure to have Jim Ward uh, on the show, who, of course, is... Uh, one of the, you know, you know, close to being a founding member, right? I mean, we'll talk about that uh, there from the beginning. So I would say I was in there in the beginning, yeah. Yeah, I def- right? I definitely helped edit and produce um, AD&D, so that's part. Um, Gary taught me how to play in 1974, so I was in the beginning. And the reason why we're really thrilled to have you on is uh, in Grog Talk this year, we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of 1980, and of course, 1980 saw the publication of a book James and I absolutely love, uh, Deities and Demigods, of course. And, and, and so welcome, Jim. Thank you for coming on. And, and Jim's uh, story uh, not only covers AD&D, but Metamorphosis Alpha, Gamma World, I mean, all these great, uh, not only genres-defining games, uh, but from that time forward. So again, thank you, Jim, for coming on. That's okay. Hey, I also have a big anniversary. You do? On April 4th, 1984, I was fired from TSR. Oh. I, I know that. I know that. It's right. It's on here. <laughs> five people in the third purge of five different purges where they went from 386 people to 86 people. But yeah, we- Celebrate that day. We are. We, we had Alan Hammock on recently, and I, he was. I can't remember. I don't think we asked him what purge number he was, but he was one of the. He was. He was right. I was he before or after you? Do you remember? I think he was before me. I think okay. he's second purge. Okay. Okay. Um, well, uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. If, if we, because I know you've you've met, talked about it many times. Hopefully, you haven't grown tired of talking about how you met. Gary Gygax back in 1974. It's my favorite story to tell. Perfect. So, 
I just graduated from college. I'm student teacher, and I'm, I'm substitute teaching. And I go over every Tuesday to the Lake Geneva Smoke Shop because they get in fantasy and science fiction books every Tuesday. So I go over there, and I'm buying some books. I'm buying an Alice Bragg the Camp Conan book. I'm buying an Andrea Norton book. I'm buying a couple Heinlein books. And as I go down the rows, this biker dude is beside me. He's got one of these blue jean jackets on. He has one of those long wallets with the chain oh, yeah. on it, you know. He's got, uh, he's got heavy boots on and, and uh, ripped jeans. And I'm done. I have seven books in my hand. And I turn over to him. He has the exact seven books in his hand. Wow. So kind of laugh about that. And we start talking about what we like to read. And he said he had a game where I could play Conan the Barbarian and fight set. And he hooked me in like a fish. It was it was Gary Gygax, and a couple of weeks later, I went over to his house and he taught me how to play D and D. And so that's how that's how I met the man, and uh, I, I've been doing well ever since. And Jim, Jim, were you playing war games at the time? Were you doing any gaming of any kind at the time? Does poker count? <laughs> sure. He had to play poker so that he could steal my allowances from me. <laughs> that was about the only game I was playing in those days. Okay. And can you tell us a little bit, because you said you went over there on a Saturday, right? Yeah. Can, you t- just, can you just describe to us that, that first time you went there and you played? Who was there? Oh, and, sure. And- okay. So um, Brian Bloom was there. He was one of the founders of TSR. He just passed yes, away. Yes, I just heard. And, uh, and Ernie Gygax was uh, Gary's son. He was in eighth grade at the time. And Don K was a friend of Ernie's. There, there was a couple Don K's, so don't get confused. There was a Don K that was was Gary's childhood friend, and and he helped Gary set up TSR, but he died just before 1974. But Don K was was another eighth grader that was Ernie's friend, and uh, and he took us out to this uh, patio place with uh, with a lot of uh, screens and and a nice breeze. And uh, we all sat on couches, and uh, they, they showed me these really weird dice. <laughs> and, I, and I hate to admit it, but it took me six months to figure out how to do those dice. We had to, we didn't have twenty siders in those days. We had we had a ten sider with two sets of numbers from zero to ten, and we rolled the six sided die. And one through three, you didn't add ten to the six sided die, and four, five, six. You did add 10 to the six sided. Took me forever to figure that out. I'm ashamed to say. But uh, we rolled up our, our, our dice, 3D6, um, and you rolled them up, and we didn't get to pick anything. You just you started with strength, and you got into charisma, and wherever your numbers were, your numbers were. And I just happened to roll a couple good numbers in intelligence and dexterity, so they suggested I become a wizard. I love the thought of that. Actually, so now it's been, let's see, that was 74. So it's been a zillion years, and all I play is wizards. <laughs> I just love casting spells and using magic wands so much that I'm not interested in playing any other character. So um, we went to Kong Island on that adventure. 
it was like Gary writing out how uh, how to do that Kong Island, which turned into a module later on, and uh, and we walked around the island in the dark. It was midnight when we hit it, and we found a bunch of native huts, and I foolishly cast a light spell in the biggest hut because I wanted to see what was there. It was ten Zulu-style natives. They come boiling out of the hut and chasing us with spears. And my adventure ended when a Zulu threw a spear through my back. <laughs> and I hit the ground and that was it. <laughs> and then uh, a couple weeks later, I came back to play again. And Ernie, Gary's son, had used, had used a wish and wished us all back alive and well. So I got to keep that character and, and I, ran him, I ran him in Gary's campaign forever. He got to be a 14th level wizard. And, uh, you know, what I think is interesting is that we've had other guests on the show who have talked about it. The first character often seems to be a wizard. You, you die in your very first game, and you love it. Right. This um, is very old school, right? I mean, what is it about dying in your first game, and yet there's something about it that makes you love it? That's a fair question. Um, you don't get attached to your character if you die in your first game. I've seen that. Time and time again, where people start like bawling about their character dying and being so very unhappy about their character dying because they've been playing them for a couple years and they have a lot of time and effort invested in them. But you just can't do that. Gary taught me to have exciting, difficult adventures. And that's how all of my game designs down through the years, and I've, I've designed hundreds of adventures, have all been extremely tough and have all been extremely deadly because the fun part of this game is sitting on the edge of your seat being you know worried about your character but i find that exhilarating and i i try to to get that going in my games i know the big boys pathfinder and, and wizards of the coast they hate it when a character dies because they think they're going to lose that that player but i don't think that's the case and Jake, can I ask you what the name of your first, and this is going to be, James, I want you to listen carefully. This is very important. What was the name of your first character, that wizard? Yeah, okay, so I'm not going to write it out, but you know Bombadil of Lord of the Rings? Oh, Tom, ba yes, I know Tom Bombadil very well, yes. Okay, good. So I used his name backwards. Hmm. Gary, Gary was a fiend. For backwards names, that's how Dromage got invented. Uh, there's a bunch of names on on his uh, on his Greyhawk map that are all friends with their names backwards, and and so that's what I did. I did Bombadil backwards. So is it fair to say that you are a fan of Tom Bombadil? <laughs> Who doesn't love that guy? <laughs> I know, right? Who in the world wouldn't love Tom Bombadil? I can't imagine anybody who wouldn't love Tom Bombadil and wouldn't be upset about its removal from the movie. He's married to a gorgeous woman. He's See, I told you, James, exactly. He's, he, anyone who can get Goldberry, exactly. Yes. <laughs> James, I'm sorry. Anybody who's immune to the ring, I have to give my respect to. There, exactly. Those, I've told James this. You can find it on tape. These are the two points. He's got Goldberry, and he's immune to the ring. Seriously? Right. James, what do you have to say for yourself? That's, I think I, I, the only good news about... Tom Bombadil was about 30 or 40 pages in the fellowship that I didn't have to read 
and I could just <laughs> skip over that and get me to fighting. That's what I cared about. I mean, there's there's two kinds. Uh, get you to those barrel That's right. There's, there's two kind of Lord of the Rings readers, those who read the poems and songs and those who don't, right? James does not. Right. It's true. I'm always a poem reader. Well, and, and um, it's interesting because, you know, uh, our friend Menyon, he just did a review of Lord of the Rings. There's been, you know, everything comes back in circle. And, you know, the, la the movies, both the 2001, the 2000s and the 70s, they, they skipped that. And there's there's pros and cons to it. I mean, you know, you look at the totality of what Tolkien put in. He had a reason to put it in there, but um, in many ways, Tolkien was the gateway to this for, for people of my generation, where older generations had Vance and Lieber and a lot, a lot of other folks where we missed that. And so I, I think in some ways that's changed the game in the 80s and 90s. Because if we grew up in the things that you read, Jim and Gary and the rest of them, we probably still would have stayed with the more pulpy, hey, you die, so what kind of thing. But uh, Tolkien became the standard. And so it's just very interesting if if we had, and now it's kind of full circle again, people are looking at the OSR and saying, hey, wait a minute, Tolkien is not the beginning of fantasy. There's plenty of fantasy before that. So it is very sure. cyclical. Is he implying that I'm old? No, you, <laughs> he, you're just older than us. That's it. Exactly. He's not. He's not. He's not saying you read Conan when it came That's out. That's right. <laughs> Most everybody. I mean. Yeah. You know, it's Burroughs was not a personal friend of yours. It's not that kind of thing. So. Oh, he wasn't. What I wish he was. Right. Oh man, those Carson of Mars, uh, John Carter of Mars books. I just loved every single one of them. Yeah. I, I, you know, go ahead, Dan. I just said, what would you say Gary's primary influences were? So when you played D&D &D with Gary back 74, 75, because a lot of us, you know, like James says, we equate it with Lord of the Rings. What do you think was Gary's biggest influences, the way he was running games? Well, I have to tell you, Gary was a voracious reader. We didn't have the Internet in those days. And so he did tons of research. I bet he went to the library every single day in Lake Geneva. And uh, he loved reading. He loved reading all genres. Um, when, when I hit him, he was reading uh, Bernard Caldwell's Sharps books, and he really loved those. And he, he was really into mythology, so um, he was a great resource for me when I was doing deities and demigods. So he was just a, a widely read person that did all genres absolutely. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about, I assume when you started playing with Gary in 74, you were going through Castle Greyhawk? Yes, the city of Greyhawk and the Castle Greyhawk, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because my understanding is there's some some levels of that, right, which have still not seen the light of day, uh, right? Okay, so this is this is getting on the edge of uh, lawsuit territory. Oh, okay, sorry. There's a certain person who is keeping that that whole Greyhawk castle and Greyhawk city material for herself so that she can get millions of dollars. No one's gonna give her millions of dollars for it. But uh, I had the pleasure of reviewing Gary's whole castle. It's an amazing place. He, he did it in 1973. And you know what, even today, there isn't a single designer in the world, including myself, who can come even close to how excellent that thing is. And, and what made it so good? What what was it about it? Well, uh, the see, okay, this is another thing. 
in, in Gary's time, you know, that's the beginning of everything. So we didn't have the storyline was a big deal. For me, the storyline is a very big deal. In Gary's time, the storyline wasn't a big deal. So it was find the monster, fight the monster, grab its treasure over and over and over again. So what Gary did with his gigantic castle, Greyhawk, was give you a bunch of different experiences. So it wasn't just the same monster all the time. It was different monsters out of mythology all the time. He had a whole level where all the monsters turned you to stone. It was just the nastiest place you could ever imagine. I got turned to stone three different times on that level. <laughs> see, see, you you know you're talking to someone who's old school when they say that and they find it entertaining. Yeah, three, not just once, <laughs> three times. Yeah, they're la- they're laughing. <laughs> I know, I know. So lucky for us, Ernie. And here's another fact of of Gary's coolness. Gary had to play test all the magic items that he put in the game. So. Um, when, when these older companies, when these Pathfinders and these these uh, Magic the Gathering people say Gary was a conservative um, DM, that's absolutely crazy. Gary was a Monty Hall DM just like me. He had to insert tons of Magic items to find out what they would do to his game. He, you know, he had to find out what a power staff would do in his dungeons. He had to find out what a ring of regeneration would do to his dungeons. So there was tons of magic in there. Lucky for me, Ernie, his son, found a portable hole. So what would happen is we'd get turned to stone and Ernie would put the statue in the hole and take us back to Greyhawk City. And there was a a black tower in Greyhawk City. It was a really high-level wizard. And we would go and we would trade really expensive magic items. And this was a game-balancing feature in Gary's game. We trade really expensive magic items to get turned back to flesh, and so, uh, and, and it was more more than three times for me. Our whole group got stoned tons of times as we met gorgons and basilisks and medusas and cockatrice. And you know, you haven't lived until you get hit with a cockatrice feather whip and get turned to stone. That's right. Life is not perfect until then. Oh, I, I think. And my understanding is you were the original. Monty Hall DM, and, and you make no apologies about it. I love being a Monty Hall DM. I like the expression on the people's faces. You find a huge chest with 150 gems. I like the smiles on my players' faces when they see that. Or, or you find, a, you find a, a chest that has 10 different potions in it. Oh, my goodness. And so I just enjoy people's glee at finding really important magic items and treasures. And, and Gary gave you that moniker, right? Yeah, well, yes. He, yeah. Okay, so interesting little story. We go to Gary's house. I think it was every Thursday night now. But we go to Gary's house, and before the real game, Ernie and I and a couple other guys would try DMing each other. And so I, I was DMing my own dungeon, with Ernie and a couple of the guys, and I had these these sashes, these sashes that go across your chest, and they gave you martial arts skills. And so I had three werebears, and they had these sashes, and Ernie and the group fought them and killed them all, and Gary was sitting listening there, and and so when, when was everything was done, 
Gary was kind of chuckling rudely at me. And I said, what did I do wrong? And he said, you're a Monty Hall judge. And I said, what in the world is that? <laughs> you're a guy who gives away too much stuff for too little effort. And so that was, you know, that was one of Gary's big points that I took to heart. If you're going to give away stuff, you got to make it really dangerous so that they, you know, have to work to survive. That's awesome. Well, uh, James, James, I would like to introduce, uh, I'd like to introduce Exhibit A, okay. <laughs> the, the foreword to, uh, to God's Demigods and Heroes, written by Tim Cass. Uh, do I have permission to uh, introduce this as Exhibit sure. A? Really? Go ahead. Thank you, ju- thank you, Judge. Uh-huh. Um, so, Tim Cask, who we're having Tim Cask on next week, right uh, on the show. So, Tim Cask wrote. Look at this interesting. I read the foreword to uh, to uh, uh, the book, to God's Demigods and Heroes, in seventy six. And this is what it says. And I was curious about this because Tim Cask says this volume is something else. Also, our 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 last attempt to reach the Monty Hall DMs. Perhaps now some of the giveaway campaigns will look as foolish as they truly are. So, it, 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 so that was interesting to me. Um, is he? So, is that a, a gentle poke at you, or, or you know? a shot at me? Yeah. Those four guys. Okay, so they're they're sitting in the in the in the what street was that? It was by the pizza. Anyway, they're sitting in the new offices of TSR, and they give hundreds of letters from kids who have 20 and 30th level characters, and this was before Gary had designed 20 and 30th level characters. So they got this they got this real bad attitude about people's games and how quick they went from first level to 20th level. And so those became the Monty Hall people. But, uh, and you know, after a while, Gary started complaining about Monty Hall people in Dragon Magazine as well even though he was one. <laughs> and so that's, that's why Tim took a shot at me on that. Now, is it? And it, it Dan. Now, as you can see, and he does say this is our last attempt to delineate the absurdity of 40-plus level characters. So, so yeah, he, um, you know, we have some chat folks, and they all say, it's great to see you, Jim. Um, David from Australia, he has a question. So if someone, based on what you just said, if someone were to write a letter in, to TSR in the mid to late 70s, who would have written back at that point? Oh, they, they switched off. Um, every week, a different person got the basket full of letters and was told to write back. Wow. So they did a week, Brian Bloom did a week, Gary did a week. They all, they all just switched off with that duty because, you know, that was one thing that Gary, again, instilled in me. The consumers are important. You know, they're, they're paying your wage. So you got to pay attention to them, and you got to pay attention to what they're saying. And Gary was great at doing that. So that's that's the way I did it too. When when I got into TSR and started in management, I I read all the letters that came into TSR because I wanted to respond to people. That's how we got our different uh, campaign worlds. You know, Al Kadim and Ravenloft and Boot Hill. We wanted to appeal to all the different segments of people and their interests, and I think we did a great job. Awesome, great, Dan. Well, yeah. Well, well, what I think was interesting is that a lot of people who became involved with the Indian doing work for TSR were freelancers, right? I mean, I think Ed Greenwood we had on the show, I think about a month ago. Um, you were not, right? I mean, what's interesting is you did not become an official employee 
right? I believe until what? Or I think till they could afford the sat to, to to equal the salary you were making as a teacher, right? There's an interesting story there. Okay, so it's 1974, and and I I go to be a teacher in Prairie Edition, Wisconsin. Move my whole family up there. Um, but every every vacation time, we go down to Elkhorn where I lived. And I would go over and play games with Gary and the group. And so from 74 to 1980, I told Gary, anytime you can afford my teacher salary, I'll be happy to come and work for the company. So 1980, he gives me a call. How much are you making, Jim? I'm making $9,700 a year, Gary. Okay, come on down. Uh, I go and work there, and I work till 1984. April 4th, as it turned out. And I get fired with 55 other people. And so for the next 18 months, I'm writing books for the book department. And some wise accountant in accounting looks at all the checks that I'm getting from writing um, one on, excuse me, one-on-one books, catacomb books, and choose your own adventure books. And they say, we're paying this guy too much money. Let's hire him back and give him a salary and we'll like have to pay him half of what we've been paying. And so that's what they did. They hired me back and I started working on laser tag game books. Jim, were you the only person that you know that was hired back? No, lots, lots of people were hired back. Oh, okay. Okay. Could, could, could you talk a little bit about the idea for gods, demigods, and heroes? Because what's interesting is this is very soon, right? I mean, this, this is very soon after you had met Gary. I know it's published in 76. You're not working for the company. So who, whose idea was it, and, 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 and were you compensated for it? Okay, so you're asking all these interesting stories. All right. So I started out, I played D&D, and I just, I just loved it. I was so hooked. I can't tell you. I hope that was. So I told you, Gary, you need a science fiction version of this. And Gary said, you know, Jim, I just haven't got the time to write it right now. Why don't you give it a try? So he had no idea if I could write. He had no idea. He just thought maybe, because I was a pretty good D&D player, that I could maybe manage it. So I wrote Metamorphosis Alpha, all right? First science fiction role-playing game. And... And I was off like crazy. Okay, I, I can write things now. So again, I suggested to Gary, Gary, you got all the other areas covered. You know, you got the fighters covered, you got the wizards covered. We really need the clerics to have the gods to call on to help them out. So Gary said, okay, give it a try, Jim. So I, I went and he, he hooked me up with Rob Coons and... Uh, and it was a ton of library work. Again, no internet in those days. So I was at the library all summer long researching different pantheons, used the Golden Bow, used a bunch of other books, and God's Demigods and Heroes got developed. And and you had a debate with Gary over hit points, right? I mean, I don't know if that I don't know if that was only for um, the uh, deities and demigods, or did that debate come about for the the gods, demigods, and heroes? You really did your research. I'm very impressed with you, young man. Thank um, you. <laughs> the debate on hit points didn't come until I did deities and demigods. I wanted to give so I had different levels of gods. So we had we had the primary gods, Odin, four. Those are the big boys. Then we had demigods, which are kind of 
half God, half human, uh, and then we had heroes. I wanted all of the head of Pantheon, Zeus, and uh, Odin, and all those boys to have a thousand hit points. And Gary said, absolutely not, absolutely not. They can have 400 hit points, but what happens is they don't die when they get killed. And see, that was one of the things that was happening in the letters. They, they get letters saying, well, we killed Odin this weekend, and now we're looking for set nicest. <laughs> so Gary explained to me, they don't die. Um, their avatars um, die on this earth, but they go back to their own plane of existence, of Valhalla in the case of Odin and the boys, and they regenerate and they, they, they come back again. So they never get they never get killed physically, and so that I had I had to agree with them. I mean, first of all, when Gary Gygax says, "No, Jim, you're going to have 400 hit points for Odin," you say, "Yes, sir," and you get back to work. <laughs> so we didn't disagree about a lot of things. He really liked the magic items that I did from history, and he really liked um, some of the monsters that I found um, historical notes on. But uh, hit points was about the only thing we really disagreed on. Well, uh, James and I, we, we absolutely love deities and demigods. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about the core books, um, and they talk about the three, of course, but, you know, my view is that there's, there's four core books. Uh, and did you come up with, so the non-human deities, which, if I recall correctly, the non, non-human deities were not included in the gods, demigods, and heroes, Right. Uh, but they are included in deities and demigods, uh, and, and, and I love them. I think they're great. I actually, I wish there had been more. I'm a big fan of Roger Moore's additional ones and that, that he published. Did did you come up with those? Yeah, I came up with them on Gary's order, actually. He said he needed some gods for the orcs. I said, okay, I can manage that. So we did We did all the – pretty much most of the races got their own pantheons. Oh, then this is great. Okay, so it is time. Could you please tell us how to pronounce the name of the orc deity so we can get this solved once and for all? Yeah, no thank you. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> you, it's your <laughs> nanny. <didn't> you? <laughs> actually, actually, it's Hasbro's. That's right. Okay. And, uh, and well, I, think you can, I don't think you're going to sue for saying the name, are you? I don't think I can get sued either, but I'm not. The deity that shall not be named. James, I ask you to direct the witness to answer the question, please. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's not relevant to the uh, matter at hand. He is the. Uh, there we go. There we go. Thank you very much. Yeah. I oh wow. My side. Okay. Then this is okay. But this is very important. Then, James, do you realize who we have on the show? We have on the show apparently the person who created Garl oh. Littergold, the gnome deity, and Hurtlemach, the kobold deity, right. right? So that's fair to say, right? Yeah. Okay, wow. And he just says it like, yeah. I'd be like, that's right, because I'm a huge gnome fan. So that means you are responsible for the story of Garl Glittergold collapsing the ceiling on Kurtlemach. Is that, that's right. Is that fair to say? Yeah, old tricks. That's great. Can you tell us about that? I, I love that. Look, I, I know I this sounds. Yeah, I was going to be grilled about a book that I wrote 42 years ago. Oh, that's all we I, do. I, I, I warned you, sir. I told you. 
told we you. stop. We don't. We don't recognize anything after uh, 1985. It stops for us. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, so it sounds like you probably don't remember a lot about coming up with the that's that back because I love that backstory. I'm a huge gnome fan, uh, and so I love that story. It's classic gnome to me. Um, but, but you, pro it sounds like you probably don't remember <laughs> coming up with that. You have look, see there. There you go. Look. Yes. No one. That's my mug. I can't get it back because I have a stay home order. You have to uh, go to Troll Lord Games, and you have to get one of their books called Of Gods and Monsters. I did the exact same thing with Pantheons for CNC. Are you familiar with CNC? Yep. I am not. Castle of Crusades. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So I did the very same thing with Pantheons. You'll love the gnomes in that book. Oh, thank I, you. I despise them, so that's why we have this uh, thing. So. <laughs> Well, and, and, and Jim can confirm, he's done it before, he did it on Carlos's show, that Gary Gygax played a gnome illusionist thief, I believe, right? Yes, he did. Okay. All the time. All the time. He, it All wasn't his favorite character. The dwarf. I have no further questions. No further questions. <laughs> I'm sorry. You said, go ahead. The That's dwarf. Right. But, uh, but in, in the Of Gods and Monsters Pantheon book, I, I, I had matured, of course, as a designer. It was like... 30 years later. And so what I did was I gave all the gods avatars. They didn't come down as themselves. They came down as normal people with, with exceptional abilities. And they gave each of their worshipers a gift. So if you worship the god of fighters, then you had a little extra Benny when it came to fighting. But I wanted to, I wanted to increase the role-playing element of, of the Pantheon books. And I think I succeeded. It's, it's, a, it's a fun book. I don't even think it's in print right now. They've sold so many of them. That's awesome. Okay, great. And I didn't mean to cut you off because we love Gary's stories too. So you said, so was was Gary's favorite, you were talking about Gary and a dwarf. Was that his favorite character to play? Was oh, a dwarf? Dwarf, yeah. Growing the dwarf. It was his favorite character. And, and actually, <laughs> I just filled stories today. Um, so the time is 1978. And I'm going over to Gary's house every Thursday night to play the game with, with Gary and his friends. And one day, I'm playing the game, and we go down to into a section of his dungeons that we'd never been in before. It was really exciting of what we were uncovering. And we came to this place where there was this gigantic metal portal. And, oh, man, it piqued our curiosity. But we had all survived Tomb of Horrors. So we were not just going into an empty, dark place. So we tested it. We threw ropes in. We threw plants in. We had a rat that we threw in and pulled back out. And, uh, and all the tests were fine. So we all jumped into this portal, including Gary's character, Groar the Dwarf. And we were on the Starship Warden. Ah. Gary says to me, Jim, have you got your Warden material with you? And I said, yeah, sure, Gary. I got it in the car. I said, Jim, would you please bring it in? And so I had no idea what he wanted, but, I mean, it was Guy Gary Gygax. So when he asked you to do something, you do it. <laughs> and so I brought it in, and, and Gary had switched chairs. So for several years, Gary had sat at the end of the table in the DM chair, and we all sat around the, the table listening to him be a DM. That chair was empty, and Gary was sitting in my chair with a character sheet in front of him. I was extremely nervous. So Gary said, go ahead, sit there, Jim. So I sat in Gary's DM chair, and 
Gary said, we've all been transported to the Starship Warden. And I said to myself, oh no, my favorite elf half-thief wizard character, Rand of the Blade, has been transported to the Starship Warden. And so for several weeks, I had to run the game from Gary's chair, and I had to watch my beloved elf character and a bunch of other fantasy characters roam the Starship Warden and, and not kill them off. It was very difficult for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Finally, um, this year, we did this huge Kickstarter on, on the Warden. We did all the, all the 17 levels and all the 16 in-between levels as a Kickstarter for Troll Lords. And one of the adventures for the Kickstarter was Save the Elf Prince Ren. And so now there's an adventure where you take your fantasy characters, C&C ninth level uh, elf characters in this case, and you go on the starship and you try to survive all the horrors of the starship and the mutations and save the elf Ren. So I'm, I'm, I've got a good chance of getting my elf to come back home. Awesome. Do you, do you still have his original character sheet? Um, somewhere buried in the archives. You know how that is. Yeah, we're just going to need your. Before we get off the off this show, we want to get your address yeah. for just, just for for official <laughs> reasons. Right. It's 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 legal right. reasons. Right. It's necessary. Take yeah. FCC rule. Yeah, just as long as you don't ask for any checks to go with it. Nah, yeah. <laughs> no worries. Okay, I've been dying. I'm full of questions, as you know. I've been dying to ask this question, and I I know the answer to this. I know this. I know what I'm going to tell you is false. You never ask questions unless you know the answer. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. So. There, yeah. there, there is there is a story out there that you are responsible for the monk. Are you are you aware that there's a story out there that you're responsible for the monk? Actually, Dave Arneson is responsible for the monk. Because the the rumor is is that you were a fan of the song Kung Fu Fighting, <laughs> and therefore you, <laughs> I'm that's. Oh my God. No, no. So you, right. That's not true, right? That's not true, absolutely. Yeah, in uh, what was the name of that book? Eldred Wizardry. Dave Arneson had designed the the monk traits, and uh, so he was the guy who who set that up and got it going. It was a little more powerful than they anticipated, but uh, you yeah, know, it was is him. I love the monk. I love the monk character, but I never played one myself or. Actually, I don't think I ever had any players that played them either. And I've heard, I think, that I, I've heard that Brian Bloom, I think, was a big fan, and Tim Cask hated it, and Gary agreed to use it. And Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. Uh, Brian really loved martial arts. He didn't do any of them, but he really loved them. And Tim, Tim was happy to say no to anything. <laughs> <laughs> we can ask him. We're getting material for next week. Yeah, really. You'll find him a delightful interview, yes. Yes, lots of good aspects about the game and gaming. Well, yeah, we're looking forward to it. Can, can you talk a little bit about, you wrote, my understanding is you wrote Deities and Demigods in the summer of 79, right, during your, your break from teaching. Yes. So you're, you're not working, right? So you, you I, a lot of people probably don't realize this for TSR. <laughs> right, I'm not working as a well, full-time employee. Yeah. And not working for TSR when you write this. Right. So, so um, you know, can you talk a little bit about, because this is, it's an incredible book, and um, the amount of effort that you put into it is, 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 is clear. 
So what was that summer like when you were putting this together? Because if I understand it, even though you're co-authored, I think that um, it's mainly right. I think, think Rob Kuntz at that time had, had other responsibilities and, and a lot of it right fell on you, I believe. I, I never talked about what Rob did or didn't do. Oh. In this so um, the, it was the summertime and I had this writing assignment and I was, I was really just loving the assignment. And the, the guys at uh, TSR sent me a thousand uh, photocopied templates for the gods. Um, you know, in the template that we use in the book itself. And they sent me a thousand of those sheets. And so what I would do is I'd, I'd start on a pantheon of gods and I'd do a bunch of research. I'd jot down the, uh, the various um, magic items that they had. I'd jot down the creatures that they faced and I'd put them in the templates. And then when I'd get done with it, when I got done with the Norse template, I would send that over to TSR and they, they started editing it. So I just did template after template after template and as I got them done, I sent them to TSR. Okay, got it, got it. Um, James, do we have any chat out there? I don't want to. Yeah, there's actually so uh, a kind of a specific question that you don't, you know, uh, as as and you mentioned that the somewhat controversy of statting the deities and then people trying to kill them, and then once you set up the planes, um, one of the questions was, and whether you remember this. All of them had variable damage except the Sumerian deities. Why did they have, they did specific damage versus all the other deities had random damage. Was that just from your research that they did that? It was, it was just from my research that they actually, they, they didn't give numbers, specific numbers, but they gave uh, a very specific effects from their attacks. And so that's what I used for those. That was a great question, whoever asked that. was that. Uh, David from our friend in uh, Australia who, has been playing so long that he actually wrote a letter and got a letter back. So that was his question. Now the cosmo now the cosmology, who can because to me, you know what what differentiates um, A D and D and 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 that ilk is the alignment system as it's made and also the cosmology that's behind it. Were you put in charge of that and how? What was your approach to the you know the outer planes, inner planes, and and? Okay, great. That's a great question. I actually am only responsible for the plane of concordant op opposition, the, the neutral plane in the middle. Okay. Here, but all the rest of those planes, um, based on his research, um, on on like different. He was a great big Dante fan, so the, the different levels of hell and that kind of thing kind of worked that into the game. Um, so I only did the neutral plane in the middle, and I'm still quite proud of it because it's a way cool place. Right. But he the happy hunting grounds and and he did all those other plays. Because it's kind of like college football. The best part about college football here in the United States is trying to figure out who's number one. You know, having a playoff is ruined that. The same thing with the alignment. It's constantly having the battle with your player. No, I that's a lawful good character would do that or a chaotic eater. You know, that's what makes it entertaining. Yeah. Hey, Gary was quite savage about alignment. If you did stuff that was contrary to your alignment, you changed. Gary changed yeah. you. So I, I started out lawful good because I thought that's what I should be. But uh, but time and time again, he, he bumped me until finally I was uh, chaotic good. <laughs> so 
Gary, Gary was very specific about alignments, and, and those poor paladins. I played a paladin once, and it gave me it gave me a headache. <laughs> they're 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 so straight. They're so lawful right. that that they're difficult for me to deal with. And, and Jeff, if, if I can ask you about alignment for a second. So I know in, in deities and demigods, it indicates that a cleric's alignment has to be identical uh, to that of their patron deity. So was that, you know, do you remember making that decision? Um, because, you know, sometimes it can be kind of hard. I mean, I, if I recall in the, in, in the Dungeons Master's Guide, it says something about it doesn't necessarily, and I'm, I apologize if a bit of a dragon's foot uh, uh, episode breaks out here. But um, you, you, um, it says, Gary apparently said, it doesn't necessarily have to be, and then the demigod says it does. So was that a conscious decision uh, that yeah, you made? It was, uh, because again, Gary was a stickler for alignments. So I said to myself, okay, if, if that's the way Gary wants to play it, I don't have a problem with that. And if you if you vary from the alignment of your deity, then you're gonna then you're gonna be getting another deity is what's gonna happen. Okay. So that happened a couple times in my games. Uh, for me as a player, I uh, <laughs> I remember one really nasty time. I was uh, I was a follower of Isis, goddess of magic, in Gary's Greyhawk game. And so I think I grabbed something that I wasn't supposed to grab in an Egyptian tomb. It was, I think it was like a tiara or something. And I just got really mad at me and made it clear. She was mad at me by throwing thunderbolts at oh. me. So I know. So I rushed into a temple in, in Greyhawk and, and I, I, I undid my, my faith in Isis for another deity. And uh, she was pretty nasty to me for a long time. <laughs> I had to give up lots of treasure to appease her. <laughs> Just fun role-playing stuff. And, and, he, and you know, so speaking of clerics, do you know why Gary chose to have so many races could only be NPC clerics? Because, so, you know, it's the famous parentheses in the player's handbook. So, you know, dwarves, elves, and gnomes, it's only NPC, and I've never under really understood. I mean, if there are gnome clerics, why can't and they're adventuring gnome clerics? Why can't I be a gnome cleric? Yeah, okay, that that's all. See, this is something nobody sees. Gary worked very hard at balancing his game. Right, that's why clerics can't use swords. Well, the original clerics. They really want me to vote for some strange reason. Good for them. We're going to ignore that. Yeah, yeah, stop it. Be quiet. Grog talk's more important than democracy. Is that the grog line? That's, uh, you know. <laughs> the grog line? <laughs> yeah. So, I'm sorry that's making a noise. All right. So, Gary, game balance was a big deal for Gary. And that, that, the, the other races not being able to be character classes was straight from his D&D game, and it, it went into AD&D. And of course, you know, that's changed now over the years, but for Gary, it was a game balance thing. Clerics can't use swords, wizards. There, there's a sword on the ground there, Gary. I want to pick it up and use it. Okay, you can pick it up, but you don't hit a thing with it. So it, it, for Gary, it was a matter of game balance. And, you know, I, I had to respect that. But you don't see it. I mean, you don't see it in Gary's rules. I mean, he just he's just trying to balance the game so that you're making choices 
along the way, and those choices affect how you play the game. And, and what, out of curiosity, what rules from first edition AD&D by the book did, did Gary tend not to use? I mean, I've heard that he had like a death rule where he used con, where he could go to whatever negative number. What rules did he tend to ignore? Well, okay, first of all, Gary never consulted the rules during a game, never, ever. The only time he ever consulted the rule books was at the end to tell us the experience we got from monsters and the experience we got from acquiring magic items. Otherwise, he had just ignored the rules. Oh, my goodness. Um, he was a storyteller, and he wanted to tell a story with every game. So that, that was fun stuff. And uh, so, yeah, he had some private homegrown rules that really they all turned into AD&D. So. Did, did players ever, because nowadays, you know, everyone brings the DMG to the table. And they, you know, point out to the DM that they've got it wrong. Did anyone ever point out to Gary that he had gotten a rule wrong? You're funny. <laughs> uh, inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. Okay. Maybe at a like a Gen Con game, at a, at a festival game, but you know, I don't know anybody who's bold enough to say Gary that's wrong. Because, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I worked with him for 20 years, and I never had the guts to say that was wrong. <laughs> Whatever Gary said, that was that was canon for me. And what's interesting is, because you say that, um, you know, we've been reading the Dragon magazines because because us, this is uh, yeah. And I was just bringing it up that you know this was still at the time in Dragon where they were ranking players. Like you were ranked, and you know you go to these Masters <laughs> events, and Gary's like 27th. 18th, <laughs> don't you all work for him? It would be like, oh, that's a great thing, Gary. Of course, well done, yeah. like a Politburo. A thousand points for Gary. 10,000 points for Gary. He's like 27th, the Masters Tournament too. So how did that, what, what was that like? Yeah, it was pretty cool, I'll tell you. I got actually to, got to be the judge a couple times in those tournaments, and I just loved being the judge. Um, but yeah, it was just a neat feature. Um, and Gary's company that, because most of us, especially the designers, but most of us, the designers and editors, all ran our own games. And uh, and so Gary wanted to, because poor Gary, he had to referee all the time. He really loved playing just as much as refereeing. So he never got the chance to play a lot. So that's what he set up. He set up these big tournament games where he was one of the players and, uh, and got to play the game, and, and he enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, but he wasn't very good at it. <laughs> uh, he wasn't bad, I'll I, tell you I'm that. I'm just kidding. It's just in the listing, he comes in like, we're thinking, Gary Gygax is yeah, 19th? Right. How does he become 19th in this? You know, that's all. Yeah. The rankings don't lie. I think that was more Brian Bloom did than <laughs> Gary. <laughs> Didn't you? Now, you killed Gary's character once, I believe, right? Time in 40 years of playing Metamorphosis Alpha, he opened a door and 10 tons of brown fungus fell on him. <laughs> now, I, okay, I want to ask, ask you about going through any of Gary's adventures because my understanding, right, you already talked about how you come to the portal, you're very careful, you do about eight different things that you've got to be extremely careful, right, in Gary's adventures. Absolutely. Yet, yet, Gary, Gary invents ear seekers. 
of my understanding is to dissuade people from listening a door. So, I, I, so what do you do? I mean, so in other words, you're supposed to be extremely careful, and then you're extremely careful when you get ear seekers. So, the first time you get ear seekers, you're very unhappy. Let me assure you. And from then on, you don't listen to doors. But, but you're supposed to be really careful in his adventures, and he's dissuading you from listening to I'm, I, It seems to me I'm in a catch-22 here. Yeah, but, you know, there's lots of ways to be careful besides listening to doors. I mean, one of the rules that I started early on was, as I, as I, every time I went into a new chamber, I said, I look up, I look down, I look all around. And after a while, I started tossing continual light coins into the room to make sure it was well lit before I went in there. So there was lots of ways to be careful in Gary's game. And, you know, it, it kind of bugs me. In tournament games these days, the, the players aren't careful. They aren't careful because they have no love of the characters that they're playing. And, and that, that irritates me. I want them to be careful, good players, and they continue to do bonehead things. I have this horrible reputation as a, as a total party kill referee. And it's only because I, have t I, I tell everybody at the beginning of my adventures, this is going to be a very dangerous adventure. You need to be careful. I tell every single person that in every single adventure, no one's careful. Yeah. <laughs> one time, one time I killed a party of eight in five minutes. I said, okay, be very careful. Check everything out. And so they, they got into this domed area and this purple ball starts bouncing towards them. And the ball is probably like 300 yards away. And the ball is bouncing towards them. And they get terrified. And they all run into a domed warehouse. Well, the domed warehouse has these giant slugs on top of the door. And when something comes in the door, the slug grabs them and eats them. All the nine players got eaten in five minutes. Oops. That's really bad, but I, I told them not to go rushing into places. And they did anyway. And is that what you? And I should. I want to do a shout out to you, the postings you've been doing on N World. Uh oh. Oh. Right, because you've been doing a lot of the information I got was from that. Right, you've been doing a lot of write ups. Right on that site. Article a month for those guys. And they're wonderful. I recommend them yeah, we'll, uh, to we'll everybody. Put a link up there. They're they're a lot of work, but I, I like doing them because I, I get to talk about the old days, and and they're just they're just fun to do. And I saw that you wrote on there, you said, I consider myself a very old guard designer and GM, and many of my ways are considered obsolete by the players of today. I was just curious what you were referring to. Well, the main thing is killing characters. Mm -hmm. Pathfinder and, and Wizards of the Coast, they don't want you to kill one character. Well, uh, I just remember my days at, at Gary's table, sitting at the edge of my seat with like three hit points left. Wondering if I'm going to get out of the dungeon alive, you know, and that excitement, that that tension, is just—it's wonderful to experience. And they don't get that, you know. Oh, your character's not going to die. Don't worry. You go and—you go unconscious, and somebody grabs you and takes you out of the dungeon. Nope, nope, nope. Don't want to do that. Not interested in that. I, I want the games to be deadly, and I want people to survive the danger. How did Gary do death? Did he do death at zero hit points, or did he switch over to a negative 10? Or 
You know, that's fair. Um, in the beginning, it was zero hit points and you were done. But uh, then, towards, then towards the middle of his gaming, it was if you can suck down a potion in like five seconds or get healed in five seconds, you could survive. And then at, towards the end of his gaming, it was negative 10 hit points. Okay. And, and we've, because uh, Jason, I want to ask about this, about this, this spell discussion in the DMG. James and I, what we do every, every week, uh, every show, we do a random spell and we talk about it. And we need to remember that the DMG, not only the player's handbook, has a discussion of some spells. And it always seems to us, and we'd like to get your, your, uh, your information on this, it seems to us that the dis discussion of spells in the DMG was Gary pulling them back because it seemed like players might have been abusing them. Any information on a spell in the DMG seems to be bad for the player. So, so was that what Gary was doing? Was, was it people like you? Because you were a wizard. Oh, this is perfect. You were a wizard. <laughs> So is, is all these, these bringing back these spells kind of the back to, to, to not yeah. be so powerful, was it because you were abusing the spells at Gary's table? Okay, I have a wonderful story for you. You're getting lots of wonderful stories. That's today. awesome. We appreciate it, Dan. That's, I mean, uh, Jim. We are testing, we are playtesting the, the Fire Giant adventure. All right, and in the Fire Giant adventure, there's a chamber that has the queen of the Fire Giants and a bunch of guards and it's meant to be very tough. And so we, we had gotten that far and we knew we were in big trouble as those guards started pounding down on us. So I used my magic jar spell and I put my soul in the queen's body. And she ordered all of her giant guards away. So that, that, that mortified Gary. <laughs> Gary taking the time and effort to write up a very difficult encounter that I negated with five words. But he was really irritated. So the very next day, he said, Jim, that magic jar spell doesn't work like it's written anymore. I said, what do you mean, Gary? He said, Jim, from now on, when you toss that magic jar spell, your spirit goes out and it looks for other glowing spirits. You can't target anybody or anything. And I said, wow, that's, that's kind of sad. How come you're doing that? He says, oh, I just think it's a good idea. And so that's what he would do. If people would find ways to really mess up his spells and do horrible things with them, and, and he would change the spell. I thought it was kind of funny, but I never used the magic jar spell again after that. <laughs> well, that sounds like confirmation to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely confirmation. James, we got anything on the chat? Well, yeah, they mentioned that uh, thing about abusing spells. Uh, and I talked to Jim yesterday about this. You know, with the deities and demigods, we, we, since you got something va validated by Tom Bombadil, the, uh, <laughs> the Greek goddess Aphrodite, we mentioned this in our Valentine Day special on Charisma. So we were very curious on why all... Oh, James, okay. James was very curious. Well, I'm, I'm interested. No, folks. All, all of her female clerics must have a 15 or greater charisma, and all her male clerics must have a constitution of 16 or better. And we can just imagine, you know, you're going to the, to the God's Fair, right, the Agora, and you go and you decide, oh, which deity am I going to worship? You go to the Aphrodite one, and you pray that you have a good constitution. Why do you need all that constitution, Jim? Thank you very much for asking that very embarrassing question. <laughs> <laughs> She's, 
She's the goddess of romance and physical love. And so I said to myself, you know, the guy better be able to, to hold up his end of the deal. <laughs> and so he needs a bigger constitution than the women do. The women just have to look great, okay? Well, that's easy to do, but the guys need stamina. They, they, and that's, if you want a definition of constitution, there it is from Jim Ward. You've got that there. People like <laughs> Yeah, this is this is this is why it's definitely not a dumb stat. Forget about those extra hit that's points. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but no, but that's why it, it, that's why it's so wonderful. It, it, you you sprinkle the, this volume with very interesting stuff. Just there's nuggets. I mean, for example, I love. We were just talking about Valprac. Uh, I'm sorry, Vaprac, the destroyer. Where's my favorite? This is one of my favorite lines. Where is it? Hold on, hold on. Oh. It is said that this vicious being, and note we're talking about a 15-foot-tall, horrid, mottled brown and green humanoid. It is said that this vicious being is always hungry, and in times of great troubles, he walks the prime material plane, robbing, killing, and eating whatever he finds in his path. I, I think Vaprak needs to immediately be added to the random encounters. Right. <laughs> well, then that would that would be taking care of a lot of people. <laughs> yes, it would. A lot of gnomes, James says. As long as they're gnomes. Yeah. So, so Jim, um, you know, you you developed Metamorphosis Alpha and then and Gamma Road. What was the purpose of having? You know, obviously one's post-apocalyptic, one is in the future. Uh, you know, obviously that time frame, the '70s and '80s. You guys were influenced with the science fiction. So, you know. What was, why did you end up with two games? What was the purpose of that versus, you know, just making the Gamma World features inside Metamorphosis Alphas and doing a distant world or something to that effect? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So we do Metamorphosis Alpha, and, and actually it's, it's kind of like D&D in a tin can. So it's a, it's a lost starship, and you play in what's left of the starship, and, and I used uh, Brian Aldis's, um Spaceship? No. Starship. I think it's Brian Aldous wrote a book called Starship, and I used that for my idea for Metamorphosis Alpha. Um, but then we got tons of letters from people that wanted a planetary-based game. And so I said, okay, that's no problem. We can we can make Gamma World, which was the first apocalyptic role-playing game. And it, we, we made it Kind of different than Metamorphosis Alpha, but kind of the same. People love the mutations in Metamorphosis Alpha. They love seeing what kind of creatures they can make or they can be um, in the game. And, uh, and and we had just riotous fun. I remember Brian had uh, one of the things in, in uh, Metamorphosis Alpha is telekinesis, and it was based on what you could pick up. And so Brian did an elephant with telekinesis. <laughs> so he was picking up everything all over the place. And uh, and so that feature we, we wanted to put in, in Gam World, and we did. Um, and, and plus, it was uh, it was the idea of the apocalypse. I'd read tons of apocalyptic fiction. I really liked it a lot. And, uh, and of course, I know that I wouldn't last three days in an apocalypse, which is making me kind of worried with this right. virus that's going around. You just, you just and, stole my thunder. I'm like, you need to write a module where, you know, this pandemic is uh, the new Gamma World module. It, it, it writes itself. 
I don't, I don't, I'll tell you another little story. Okay, so I wanted Gamble to be different from MA. So I wanted to, I wanted to punish the greedy. So if you did a lot of mutations, physical and mental mutations, you had to take a defect. And one of the defects I had was epilepsy. And I didn't mean anything by it, but I got written from the Epilepsy Foundation that it was a terrible idea to have epilepsy as a game feature in Camel World. I was I was shocked and appalled and someone would be like enraged at me doing that. So we stripped that out of the game. But uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a different it's a different style of game. Um, there, there's more technology happening in there. Um, I've got fun. I've got those fun playtest um, charts where you, you you try to figure out things. I can't tell you the times that Gary tried to figure out urinals and toasters and kitchen sinks, and he didn't know what they were because you know you describe. Well, it's a big white thing that uh, that occasionally uh, splashes water. Oh, that's interesting. Let's see if I can figure it out. <laughs> so he starts rolling on the figure out tables and, and things happen and things don't happen until finally he says, all right, Jim, that's a urinal, isn't it? Yeah, Gary, that's a urinal you just figured out. <laughs> yes. And, um, but, and we have a question, you know, obviously in the DMG, they talk about, and you mentioned it in Castle Greyhawk, going to Metamorphosis Alpha. Did you ever run a D&D game that went into Gamma, uh, either Gamma World or back or, or vice versa? Excellent question. I did tons of games where you took your really tough um, AD&D characters and you went through a portal and you went to Gamma World and, and you dealt with them. And, and I, I just actually uh, wrote a note about that on Facebook. The the D&D, AD&D players do fine on Gamma World and Metamorphosis Alpha. They don't have any problem at all. But the reverse is not true. The stormtroopers and, and the tough soldiers of Gamma World and, and Metamorphosis Alpha always get creamed in a fan world. This <laughs> isn't good for them. Exactly. Dan, what you got? Yeah, Jim, can you talk uh, about the dice molding uh, incident? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I did a big article in End World about the dice molding. So, yeah. um, okay, so young Jim Ward is in sales and he's in charge of inventory. And one of the most important things that young Jim Ward has to do is order the 100,000 red box sets with dice that get sold every single month. So it takes six months from the time they're ordered for China to deliver a cargo ship to San Francisco and for that 100,000 units to truck over to Wisconsin, six months. So TSR had the idea that they're gonna do their own dice because all oh, those dice are expensive. And let's do our own dice molds and then sell the dice because there's big money in it. I said, hey, that's a great idea. I'm really all for that. So Kevin Bloom gets in charge of that. And this is not a pleasant Kevin Bloom story. And he gets put in charge of that. And they start making dice and dice molds, and they're having an awful time. Um, basically, what happens as they make the molds, 
it, it the, the dice come popping out and they look like pieces of popcorn with numbers on them. <laughs> they're just not the dice they're supposed to be. <laughs> so um, Kevin comes into the office and, and tells me, Jim, stop ordering dice. And, a, and a young Jim Ward is, is very dutiful and, and wants to do a good job. I say, Kevin, why is that? Because we'll have dice in plenty of time for that six-month shipment. I said, okay, okay, Kevin, that's your order. And so week after week, I go in and I secretly talk to the guys who are doing the dice. And the dice molds are just not working. They cannot make that thing work. And, and all I'm seeing is hands full of popcorn with numbers on them. I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. So I send a memo to all the vice presidents. We have to order dice so that the 100,000 units can have dice in the box. And so I would like to, you know, not do what Kevin said and order dice. And Kevin comes roaring into the room and he throws the memo in my face says, you will not order dice. Do you have any doubt what I'm telling you? I said, no, Kevin, okay. And so he leaves. Well, young Jim Ward, he, he can't do it. He just can't. He wants to obey authority, but he's incapable of obeying authority. <laughs> oh, a month goes by, and we, we are now past the date where I can get dice in the 100,000 boxes. I can't get dice now since we haven't ordered them properly. So I send out a memo to all the vice presidents again. And it says, if we don't have the dice that, that are being manufactured by TSR, we will not be having dice in that 100,000 boxes and we will not be selling those 100,000 boxes. Kevin again comes storming in. He doesn't talk to me now. He talks to my vice president, Will Needling. I will have the dice ready, never doubt it. And so Will says, okay. And, and so Kevin leaves and I say to Will, Will, do we, do we have to obey this? I mean, we really need the dice. And he says, Jim, if you get an order from a vice president, you must do what he says. And I said, okay. So the five months, five months go by. So now we're not gonna have dice for four months of boxes if we don't have dice. And I go into the dice manufacturers and guess what I'm seeing? Popcorn. I'm seeing popcorn with my father. I am, I am horrified beyond belief. So I said, well, I'm gonna send this memo to Gary and if I get fired, I get fired. And he says, okay, Jim, it's, it's, it's on you. So I sent the memo to Gary and Gary comes storming in. Jim, what's the situation on the dice? I said, Gary, we're gonna be five months out without dice because Kevin wouldn't let me order them. And Gary gets real red in the face. It's never nice to have Gary mad. <laughs> you don't wanna be anywhere around Gary Gygax when he's angry. And so he said, Jim, you order those dice and you keep ordering them until I tell you not to. I said, yes, sir. So I put in the dice order right away, but it doesn't matter because we're going to be five months out. And so Gary goes storming into Kevin's office, and I heard this secondhand. Gary says, what's the situation on the dice molds? 
And Kevin says, well, it's, it's in good hands. We're going we're gonna to have lots of dice. And Gary says, let me see them. So Kevin opens his drawer, and he pulls out popcorn with numbers on them. <laughs> Gary goes, stop raving nuts. He says, we're ordering dice from Hong Kong, and we're going to do it until you can finally make dice. And so that was, all, that was Kevin Bloom's only written reprimand in this entire time at TSR. And, uh, and he always hated me from then on. Every time I got a new boss, Kevin would go to the new boss and say, that guy's a troublemaker. You watch out. <laughs> and we'll get rid of him if he doesn't do his job. <laughs> so that's my dice story, and I'm sticking to that's it. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you. And so what happened with those bots? Those are the ones that got the chits in them, or what was the... Uh... We got three sets. 300,000 boxes went out with chits. And... It wasn't a good deal, but it turned out to be a very good deal for prisons. Prisons can't use dice, but they can use chits. So all the prisons uh, started buying up the, the boxes with chits and playing the game with, uh, you take a cup, you put the chits in, and you pull out a number. That's how they did that. Awesome. So yeah, 300,000 units of chits. It was, it was not a happy time. If I didn't get an ulcer then, I don't think I'll ever. I'm ever going to get an ulcer. Oh, that's hilarious. Did, did, did you get Did you get letters complaining about the chits? Or, I mean, so did, did it say dice on the box, and then you open it up, and you're like, "What the heck is this?" Yes, of course. We <laughs> had this index card that we put in with the chits, and the index card says, "When TSR starts manufacturing dice, send in this card for a free set of dice." And so we honored that. We honored like we got out like a hundred thousand of those back. And we, so we sent them out, and, uh, and but uh, it was just a terrible experience for me because I had to buck authority, and I hate bucking authority. After a while, I got to like bucking authority because upper management was really a pain um, towards the end of my stay there at TSR. Yeah, and maybe you could talk. So when you came back, it must have been weird, right, because Gary, Gary is, is, is gone in, I think, in, what, 86? Um, yeah, how long then? So, so what was it like? It must have been strange to, to be at TSR without, without Gary. You know, it was, it was terribly strange. And I kept wanting to go to Gary's company. Gary, Gary formed Tri-G, Tri started doing his own role-playing stuff. And, and I was always a gigantic Gary supporter, but I never got asked to come over there and work for him. It irritated me. I don't understand why that was, but... Um, yeah, we, we we started living through firings, and that was awful. And, and Lorraine did not want to publish role-playing games. She wanted to do anything else. So she tried doing comic books in Hollywood. She tried doing uh, audio CDs in Hollywood with a brother Flint. And uh, none of that really worked. Um, Kevin Broom brought in the Greenfield Needle Women. So they were doing needle kits. And they started doing D and D needle kits. <laughs> I'd love to pull those now. I bet they're worth big, big bucks. Yeah. But working there. And the chips. I bet you if you those chips on eBay are probably worth more than the dice, probably. Oh well, the original Hong Kong dice are going for silly bucks. Yeah. If they if they're in their package, but uh, yeah, the chips the chips go for a good amount of money, but there there aren't a lot around because people use them. Did you did you stay? How how close did you stay with Gary um, after he left? So did you continue to remain in contact with him all the way up until his passing? No, we were kind of estranged there for a while. Okay. Um, when he was doing tri G stuff, 
because uh, well, some of it was illegal to do. Um, Frank Menser, nice guy, but he printed a module for Tri-G that was printed for TSR. So we had to assume that wasn't conducive to French. Yeah. It tends to be, yeah, it tends to spoil the relationship when you see someone. <laughs> Gary did dangerous journeys with the GW, and we had to sue him again because he took the spells, he copied the spells from the player's handbook and just gave them different names. It, was, it wasn't a good situation. We, we won that lawsuit. But, you know, I, I, I was the prime mover in that lawsuit, you know, giving my expert opinion to the court. And so that, that wasn't good for a relationship either. But after a while, Gary and I patched up and we started playing games again. Which, which, which version of Palace of the Silver Princess do you prefer? Oh, oh, oh. And that wasn't even my fault. I was in the book department then. But oh, what a travesty that was. And, and that was because Gary's a good guy. So Gene Wells designed that. And... Her editor hated it, and for a very good reason, because it was awful. And so she went crying to Gary Geiger. Gary, I did my best work, and the editor isn't, isn't being nice to me. What can we do? And because Gary was a big softy and hated to see women cry, he, he had the editor take his hands off. Well, there was a ton of stuff in there that was just wrong. They had Rocky and Bullwinkle on mounted heads on the wall. They had this this female um, on a chandelier so you could see her underwear. <laughs> the bad stuff just kept going on and on and on. So what happened is this, you know, when TSR got a new product in, everybody got one. Uh, and because Brian and Gary realized that people would steal them if they didn't give them away. So we all got our copies of Palace of the Silver Princess and we all took them home, and we all read them, and we were all horrified beyond belief. <laughs> it's incredible. And so the next day, we all said, Gary, look, this is awful. And Gary saw it and said, you know, you're right, this is terrible. So they called them all in, but there was like 10 or 12 boxes that were del delivered directly to the distributors. And most of them got put in a great big landfill and buried. But the boxes that come, I mean, that thing goes for a thousand bucks now at auctions. And it's just wretched beyond belief. <laughs> kind of like our, our modules, if people would pay a thousand dollars for Drek. I don't understand. Why would anyone do that? I know. These, these collectors and their mentality, they got to have everything. I mean, it's really driving the price up on stuff. There's a guy in Canada who has three of everything, which. I'm very impressed. He's also very rich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Jim, can you talk a little bit, I'm going to take you way back, to a little bit about your contributions to the Dungeoneer magazine. Uh, oh, Dungeon by, you know, by Paul Jaquaze. Yeah, exactly. Because, right, I think you did an adventure, Pharaoh's Tomb in there. You did Monsters in there. I got the first one in the mail, and uh, I loved it. I just loved it. I loved the format. It was in a little book. And uh, I love the artwork. I love the articles. So I said, hey, Paul, I want to start writing for you. I didn't even charge him. I just wrote articles for it because I really love the format. I, I had a lot of adventures in there. I think until he sold it to uh, Judges Guild, 
I think I had an article every month. Yeah, and, and what I think was funny is, is for Pharaoh's tomb, uh, Paul, now Janelle, wrote, um, it's a fairly high level uh, and a bit different than what is usual fare for this section. Um, I hope that no parties of low levels or turkeys go wandering into this one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always done high-level adventures. That's what I love. Yeah. So that's what I do. I, uh, Tomb of Horrors came out. And uh, if you guys are familiar with Tomb of Horrors. Oh, yeah, right, yeah you stick, you're supposed to stick your head in the, yeah. the mouth, right? And the, yeah. and the big uh, uh, demon head, yeah. Right? Exactly. Okay. Tomb of Horrors came out, and I, I survived the playtest, but it's because I used a flying carpet. So I didn't fall in most of the pits that were there, but I also didn't find the biggest, biggest treasure that was at the bottom of one of those pits. But anyway, I survived it. So I've always loved Tomb of Horrors. The design is simple. Um, it's got way cool stuff in it. And, and I've tried for 40 years to do my version of Tomb of Horrors, to do a horrific adventure that's really scary and deadly. And I have no problem with the deadly part, but it's hard to make a horror adventure. I've, uh, I've studied it a lot and, uh, and studied elements of horror from the movies and from novels and included them in adventures, but I haven't, I haven't succeeded yet. I've got, a, I've got a product from Goodman Games that's coming out called Doom of the Warden, and it's an adventure on the Starship Warden, and it is my homage to, to uh, Tomb of Horrors in the science fiction version. Um, and that Kickstarter uh, comes out, I think, in, uh, I want to say, June. All right, excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, post that. And um, do you spend most time in science fiction now, fantasy? You do both? Or is there a genre that you'd like to do? No, I, I pretty much like science fiction and fantasy genres. I've got three different projects I'm working on right now. I'm working on a thing called Big Boss for uh, the Warden Kickstarter. And basically, it's 17 different encounters with the most powerful creature on each of the levels. And so it's going to be perfect for science fiction fans. They can just use it in a science fiction game, but also it's going to be perfect for those guys who, who like Metamorphosis Alpha. And I'm writing a short story right now for Dragon Scales. Dragon Scales is a fantasy RPG that I invented that uses a deck of cards. And, uh, and basically what happens in Dragon Scales is the red cards are good and the black cards are bad. So if you want to hit something, you have to draw a heart or a diamond. You draw a heart, you do full damage. If you draw a diamond, you do half damage. And if you want to defend against something, you have to draw a spade. And so um, we have this great big campaign, Fantasy Dragon Scales campaign. And um, Stephen Lee, he's down in Florida, and um, he does FiresideCreations.com. And they have a... They have a uh, 77 Lost World Facebook page and the Dragon Scales Facebook page, and uh, and he does he does my products for those different things to support the two different product lines, and so Dragon Scales is going to come out with I think the third short story anthology, um, and uh, and he's really good at supporting his products and and there's there's a lot of fun things coming out from from that company. Um, Troll Lords, again, I'm, I'm doing the Warden thing, which uh, is, I uh, just love it. And uh, let's see what else I'm doing. Um, I just did, got finished doing a Displacer, no, a Doppelganger adventure for a guy from Hollywood, which was kind of fun. 
So I, I like to do it all. I like to keep very busy. I usually have two or three projects going at the same time. And what I do is I do one project in the morning, the one with the, the nearest deadline, and then I switch to a different product in the afternoon. Awesome. So are you a big fan of the deck of many things since you're a, a card? Yeah. You know, I had to play test that thing. Oh, okay. And I was, I was really lucky in that I got a couple of the good cards. But I remember Ernie getting the void <laughs> card, and his, his character was gone. Yeah, that was one of the. That was, and Gary could be kind of nasty sometimes. I mean, he loved doing cursed items for some reason. He filled his dungeon with cursed items. I can't tell you how many horn of bubbles I blew, but you know, before I figured out what they were, and uh, and yeah, we, we went through a lot of cursed, nasty things. I was turned into a large ant many times by Gary. <laughs> Just first to walk the land until I was uh, healed. <laughs> and, and is it fair to, to assume that the shirt you're wearing is in honor of Gary? I, I do wear Hawaiian shirts in honor of Gary. That's true. Every Gary con, which didn't happen this year, but it, it did happen electronically, but it didn't happen physically. On Saturdays, you wear a Gary shirt, uh, a Hawaiian shirt in Gary's honor. All right, James, anything else out on the chat no, there? Just uh, they did something about B3 as well. Someone had a question just going back uh, back to the Silver Princess. Because it's so, why why was uh, the, the wilderness map removed? Any idea why that was removed uh, from? No. no. I, have this, I have this uh personality quirk. I don't like remembering bad things. <laughs> That's a good thing. It's probably life we've lasted so long. So I did not, I did not, I stayed completely away from the 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 B3 fiasco and the and the poor editor who, who felt really bad, but it was Gary's fault that it turned out the way it did. Um, just because Gene Wells went crying to her. Uh, you know, I can understand a crying woman, but boy oh boy. That product did not do anything for TSR for reputation. So, so are you still playing at this point now, or do you have a game, or are you just? Yeah, fine. In fact, I'm going to run uh, two. There's there's uh, there's two authors down in California that I just made a, a fantasy role playing game for, and uh, Nick Cole wants me to run Tomb of Horrors because he's heard me talk about it so much lately. So I'm going to run that for him. I'm going to. He has a group of five guys, and they all play over there. And I told him, I want you to do two different 10th level characters with 15s or higher in your stats and tons of magic items. And maybe one of them will walk out alive from Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> that thing is so deadly. It's incredible. I, and like I say, I, I'm in awe and wonder of it. It's a small little adventure. There isn't a lot to it, but oh my goodness, the, the dangers and the deadliness. And the, the demolage, oh, they're just nasty stuff. My son, who's 17, who's he plays a lot of fifth edition. Um, but you have my condolences. Well, but he plays with me in my game, and, and it's a one e game. And he actually ran two Maharas, and I think he got it when he that was the only module he read cover to cover. He ran it for us, and one character escaped naked, sex changed, no ma and with one hit point because we were in the altar and the fireball blew up and I was able to get back. So 
that was the end result. So, and he's like, boy, that's the best thing. So, to, did anybody jump in the mouth? Uh, no, I think that's just too legendary now. I think, you know, you know, Gary, Gary was amazed. Just amazed. he would run that module at conventions, and he was amazed at the people who wouldn't test it at all. Oh, it's large enough for us to go in, and everybody would jump in. Time and time again, Gary killed whole groups with that stupid mouse. I just, I just didn't get it, man. We tested that out ten ways to Sunday, and nobody wanted anything to do. We stuck, we stuck uh, quarter stabs in there, and we stuck ropes in there, and and they all came out stubs. So we knew we did not want to go in that hole. Yeah, I mean, so unfortunately, it's just so iconic. You know, for decades they have that, the the visage of it. In fact. Uh, our dear friend Vic Dorso made us a 3D image of one. See, there's a little, little yeah, that's terrific. Little picture of that. I'll show that to the rest of the folks. And uh, you know, so that's uh, it's just so iconic. But the rest of it in there, even if you've been through it, it, unless you've studied it, you don't remember. Okay, is this the portal that changes you, or is this the portal that drops in here? Do I click the lever? It's just there's too much. So it's uh, it's no, a lot. Is this with the secret door at the bottom, right. who this is this is part of Gary's genius? Who in the world would put a secret door at the bottom of a pit? <laughs> that's right. And if you don't find it, you're basically screwed. You know, that's kind of I know. so. I, and I never found it. I, I I survived the whole thing, but I never found the big treasure. Yeah, but, but you had a flying carpet, right? Yeah, I use a flying carpet. Yeah, there's. <laughs> I I mean, I'm. Uh, the, if you use the pre-gen characters. There's literally no way you're, unless you're extremely lucky and good, there's no way you're going to survive. Because half the things you need to defeat that, your, your pre-gens don't have it. But um, So are you going to do that virtually, that uh, two Maharas? I mean, obviously now. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, uh, Jim, we're so glad that you gave us an opportunity to relive a little bit we're very excited um if you can I'll, I'll email you if you can send us the links for your kickstarter in june your some of your products we'd be happy to promote that on our show notes here um okay because again you're not only a treasure um i got what got but not just a living treasure you know i think people don't realize i think we've seen this osr which is great um but you know like my my son um his 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 group, while they use fifth edition, they're they're very inspired by the hardcore. You know, they're they're not big fans of you know superheroes. So I think there's definitely a hunger for that um, in the newer games. I just think you know, and we do want to have a fifth edition. There needs to be a ninth edition thirty years from now, or else the game is gonna, you know, the listen to that. Oh my goodness, yeah, the game will die if there's not that. So we want we want uh, that to continue. Um, one last question from Jonathan on the chat. Do you prefer playing or or, or DMing? Ooh. You know, that's a hard one for me to answer because I don't get much opportunity to play. I mean, I go to conventions and they want me to fill up my time with refereeing. Um, so I, I probably, I don't have a preference really. I'll, I'll, I'll do either one because they're both lots of fun. But uh, I, I don't like doing low-level characters anymore. Well, I, you know, I, I want a backpack full of stuff <laughs> when, I, when I go. I have to have my continual light wands and my healing potions and, and this or that. Um, so I, I kind of like the mid and high-level games. My games, when I ran the games, 
I always started people off at ninth level. Wow. I like kind of so, games. They're fun. So challenge accept. You know, we do have our convention. Assuming you know we're all here in October. Uh, you know, if if being that we're fortunate. You know, we may be like Forrest Gump. That's what we keep saying. We, we're the only shrimp boat left, uh, you know, before, obviously, things will happen in November. But, yeah, if we bring you, if, if you are available and it does work out, you come down, we'll run a high-level adventure for you so you can play for once, Jim. That's not a problem. <laughs> My problem is I'm in a wheelchair. Yeah. So it's really hard for me to go anywhere. Yeah, and, and, tra- and especially now with travel, it's, it's, it's scary. It's scary to do that now, yeah. so. And- and, I mean, and Jim, you... I'm with I'm with the you know the, our our administration. I, I think we're going to be okay in you know three or four months. But the question is, will this be a cyclic thing? Yeah. Will this every winter will this thing come back and kill a hundred thousand people? Right. We just don't know. No, it's until not. a vaccine there, happens. Odds right now. I mean, I'm hearing an eighty percent survival rate when you catch it. I'm I'm hearing that uh, you know the, your percentage chance. We only have eight in, in my in my Walworth County in Wisconsin here. Wisconsin wasn't hit very hard at all, but Illinois was clobbered. Um, so it, it's just, it's a terrifying thing. Terrifying. Right, and you know, it's, um, you know, unfortunately, the older we are, the older we get, some of this stuff we could have just sloughed off, we can't, and, are, are, and, and you're doing okay up there in Wisconsin? Right now I can't complain, me and my pretty wife are doing fine. Awesome, awesome. Dan, anything else for the good of the order? We let this man enjoy his Saturday. Probably has a sheet of thirty more questions. Yeah. Wait, I'm only done with page one. Wait, <laughs> the interview's ending. Yeah. One last question. What was your all-time favorite adventure? Was it Tumahars to be as a player? Your all-time favorite module. I have to say, I just adore Tumahars. Got it. Okay. I, I think that's my all-time favorite of the of the A D and D adventures. I I have no further questions. Well, so. Jim, thank you so much for this. That's right. You've, uh, you, the prosecution rests at this point. So, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Godspeed. Best wishes. I'm glad you're uh, doing well. Um, again, if you ever want to come on and, and talk about what you're working on, we would love to have you on. It's just send me an email, or I'll call you, and we'll we'll get you on again because you have a lot of friends and a lot of fans out there who not only are interested in what you've did, but what you're doing today. Uh, so, thank you for your time today. All right, my pleasure, really. It was a great interview. You didn't ask too many embarrassing questions at no, all. No, no, no. Thank you. No, no problem. So <laughs> so for Grog Talk, I'm James. And I'm and Dan. we will see you all next time on Grog Talk. Take care. This is big, a pushy, a big production. All rights reserved.